Good morning. Thanks for being here. And good morning to all of you watching us online. I know that, that some of the roads a little bit further out from here are not really great today, but I have to say this, that if you stayed home because it was snowy and icy and cold, you have to forfeit the Canadian right to say A all this next week. So, but if you came in spite of the weather, use it up, say A to everything like you always do. Um, hey, listen, we are looking at chapter two of The Good and Beautiful God this week, and I want to remind you of the subtitle of this book. This book is subtitled, Falling in Love with the God Jesus Knows. And I want you to keep that in mind, because Jim Smith in this book, his goal is that we would know and love God the same way that Jesus knows and loves God. And honestly, that should be the most important endeavor in our lives. It's to know God the way Jesus knows God, to love God the way Jesus loves God. And so chapter two is entitled, God is Good. And, and that reminds me, some of you may remember, there was this call and response. It's an old tradition in churches where the pastor stands up and says, God is good. And the congregation says, Oh, yeah, you do remember it. And then the pastor says, and all the time, and the congregation says, God is good. So now that if you didn't know that, you know it now. So let's try it one time for real. You ready? God is good. And all the time, there you go. That is sound theology, isn't it? That, that's something that we all need to know. But I also think it's a good reminder when God's goodness seems like it's far away when tragedy or evil or setbacks tend to hit us, that call and response might be both a, a reminder and it could actually be an attempt to convince ourselves that God is good when things don't seem so good. If you've ever questioned God's goodness, goodness in any kinds of harsh circumstances, don't feel bad. We all have and it's nothing new. Jesus faced that same question in our text this morning from John 9, 1 through 7. And so will you stand with me now out of reverence for God's word as we read this text? It's John 9, verses 1 through 7. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Father, we thank you so much for your word today, for your truth today, God. And we just ask that you would lead us into a deeper understanding and acceptance and living into your goodness. If there's anything this morning that is said that is not the fullness of your truth, that doesn't draw us deeper into you, let it just fall to the ground. Let it go by the wayside. But open our hearts and our minds to yourself today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can see that the narrative that God is to quote Smith an angry judge, if you do well, you'll be blessed. If you sin, you'll be punished. You can see that narrative in the question of the disciples here. Who sinned, this man or his parents? That narrative of God undermines the fact that God is good, and here's why. 
If God would make a man blind because he or his parents sinned, then God's goodness becomes secondary to our badness or our goodness. Do you see that? Blessings and curses, trials and contentment become a product of our behavior instead of God's goodness. And it all comes back down to that age-old question. I'm sure you've heard this, maybe you've been asked this by non-believing friends. If God is good, then why do bad things happen to good people? Have you heard that question? Been asked that question? See, I think this question is one that everyone faces as they grow in their faith. We've all faced this question. And Jim Smith tells the story of, the, of he and his wife wrestling with that same question in a personal tragedy. In this chapter of his book, he talks about their daughter, Madeline, who was born with a congenital birth defect and died at the age of two. And he tells the story of a pastor he'd known for years, taking him to lunch in an attempt to comfort him. And the pastor asked him this question, who sinned, Jim, you or your wife? That question displays that pastor's pastor's belief that if bad things happen, then you must have sinned. In short, God is a punishing, angry judge. And so I want to answer three questions for us today as we explore and hopefully reconcile the reality that God is good with our own experiences of life where things seem bad at times and bad things happen. And so here's the three questions I want to resolve today. First, I want to answer once and for all the question of why do bad things happen to good people? So when you leave here today, you'll have a final answer on that. Second, I want to answer the question, if God is good, then how do I place myself in his goodness? And the third thing I want to resolve for you today, and the last question is, how should I respond when it doesn't seem that God is good? So let's start with that first question. Why do bad things happen to good people? I want to answer that question with a question. And my question is this, why do you care? Why do you care why bad things happen to good people? Here's why I asked you that question. It's only happened once in history, and he volunteered for it. Listen to this in Luke 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So let me connect the dots here for you. The ruler called Jesus good. Jesus said, don't call me good, only God is good. But the ruler knew that Jesus was good. He'd seen it, he'd heard it, he'd experienced it, which is why he called Jesus good in the first place. Now, Jesus' answer that only God is good is not denying his own goodness. He's not saying you've got it wrong, I'm not good, only God is good. On the contrary, By saying to this man that God is good, a man who knows Jesus is good, Jesus is making a statement about his divinity. He's saying, you know and see that I am good, but only God is good. Therefore, recognize that I am God. Now, if only God is good and Jesus is God, then when you ask if God is good, Why do bad things happen to good people? Do you see the only reasonable response is my question? Why do you care? Because we aren't good? It's a question that doesn't impact us. 
Only God is good. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow because we all want to look in the mirror and say, I know I'm a good person. But the reality is, maybe the better question is this. If God is good and I am not, why does God allow any good to befall me at all? If he is good and I am not, why does any goodness impact me? And the answer is grace. See, grace is the practical manifestation of God's goodness in the lives of those who are not good, which is every one of us, you and me. So why do bad things happen to good people? It only happened once, and he volunteered for it. In fact, if we were to live in the awareness of God's constant goodness poured out on us in the form of grace, we would be too busy praising his grace to even notice bad things happening to us. Now, people can be good relative to other people. We know this. There are people in the world who I know are much better people than I am. And relative to me, I have to call them good. But if God is the true standard of goodness, which he is, then I can never be good in my own nature and character. I know that can be a hard truth to swallow in a relativistic post-Christian world. I'm not talking about comparing anyone else to God's goodness. This is a truth, a reality that must reside in my own heart and mind as a template to look at myself. So, the next time someone asks you, if God is good, why do bad things happen to good people? You can answer with a question. Why do you care? You're not good. Abrasive evangelism at its finest. Seriously though, when we recognize that we aren't good and we praise God's goodness poured out on us as grace, our lifestyle of grace will have a greater impact on others than any answer to that question that we could ever give. And so if we look and someone says, why do bad things happen to good people? And the reality is, you know what? I don't really notice the bad things in my life because all I can see is God's grace poured out on me in the form of goodness on someone who doesn't deserve it. That is lifestyle evangelism. Now, before we answer the second question, if God is good, then how do I place myself in his goodness? We need to acknowledge a truth that goes right along with the truth that God is good. And it's in Romans 1.18. Listen to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Because God is good, he must judge that which is not good. Namely, the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Part of that suppressed truth in reality is that God is good and I am not. We cannot suppress that truth. And now, listen, Make no mistake, because God is good, he will judge all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Our ungodliness and our unrighteousness must be met with judgment or God would not be good at all. 
for a good person to ignore that which is not good makes that person not good. So because he is good, he must confront all that is not good. And so I want you to hold on to that reality for one second as we go back to this question. If God is good, then how do I place myself in his goodness? So turn to Luke 13, verses one through three. Listen to this. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise suffer. Do you see Jesus in reference to these Galileans that Pilate murdered, starting from the narrative that people had, which is God is an angry judge, therefore these Galileans must have done bad to get what they got. He refutes it by asking if they think that somehow these Galileans were worse sinners than others. It's rhetorical, they weren't. But Jesus immediately says, your fate is the same as theirs. You will perish. Unless you do what? Repent. So there's the answer to our second question. How do I place myself in God's goodness? I repent. And what does it mean to repent? Well, the Greek word that's used here is metanoia. It means to change one's mind, to be changed internally. In short, to think in terms of truth is what repentance is. And the beginning of repentance might just well be to realize in your heart and mind that God is good and you are not. That may be the very beginning of repentance, to acknowledge our spiritual poverty, to stand before God and say, there is nothing in me worth redeeming apart from you. Spiritual poverty is looking at God and saying, I cannot save myself from this spiritual state, only you can. It's what we sang a minute ago. I have nothing to offer a king. There's nothing in me that I can bring before God and stand in God's presence and say, look at my goodness, apart from his goodness. Means then that I must be brought into the goodness of God. And so that's how I place myself in God's goodness. Repent, realize and live into the truth that I am not good and that I am in desperate need of a savior. His name is Jesus. So repentance places me in God's goodness and I then begin to be transformed by that same very goodness. And now I am removed from God's wrath. And here's why. Because Jesus received God's wrath for me. Listen to this, what Paul says in Romans 3, 25 and 26. Whom, now the whom he's talking about here is Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. God's righteousness, not ours, God's because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time 
so that he might be justice, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's righteousness, so that God may be just and justify us who have faith in Jesus. So God's wrath towards us, because we are not good, is not simply just pushed aside. It's not simply just put on the shelf. It's actually put on. It's put on Jesus. And so the wrath that we deserve because we're not good has already been placed on him. Therefore, to be placed in God's goodness, which we desperately need because we are not good, is to repent of belief in my own goodness, in my own ability to stand before God in who I perceive myself to be. Repent of that belief and say, I bring nothing before you other than you and me. Which means that once you come to the truth that you are not good and God is, acknowledging that you deserve wrath, but realizing that Jesus has already received that wrath, then you're able to live into the full grace of God as his own through faith in Christ. So why do bad things happen to good people? What's it matter to you? It's happened once, he volunteered for it. How do I place myself in God's goodness if God is truly good? By repenting of the belief that I somehow have a goodness of my own. Repentance, belief, and trust placed in Jesus for salvation now moves me from outside of God's goodness to right smack dab in the center of it. And that brings us to our final question. How should I respond when it doesn't seem that God is good? How should I respond when it doesn't seem that God is good? Because here's the thing. We will always encounter evil. Jesus' life is the best example of that. The one who lived a life that deserved no badness, no evil, encountered it. Jesus himself told us that we would have trouble in this world. The absence of troubles in my life is not a marker of whether or not I'm in good standing with God or whether or not I have somehow behaved rightly or wrongly. The absence of trouble in your life may actually be the presence of delusion because we all have troubles in our lives. So if God is good and I can place myself in his goodness through repentance, how should I respond when it doesn't seem like God is good? Anybody ever had one of those moments? You look around and you go, I don't get it, God. You're supposed to be good. This isn't good. The doctor just called. This isn't good. The job has gone away. This isn't good. The house burned down. This isn't good. The child has died. This isn't good. What are you doing to me? You're supposed to be good, and this isn't good. This might be the most important question for us as Christians to resolve because we will encounter evil, badness, wrongness. And it does not change the fact that God is good. And it does not somehow mean that in this moment, he's become the angry judge where he's walking around like the whack-a-mole God. If you stick your head up too high, he's gonna pound it back down. That's not goodness. And so 
each of us has experiences in our lives. When we look around and we can say, God, this is not good. I don't see it. And then the question can become, what have I done in your eyes to deserve this? Or the question can become, are you really good? Or sometimes the question is, I know you're good for everybody else, but why aren't you good for me? Well, here's the thing. Listen to this in Romans 7, 18 through 20. This is the beginning of understanding how to respond when it does not seem that God is good. Verse 18 in Romans 7, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. Reality check. Nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, I think it's a safe assumption to say that when Paul wrote this, he was in the goodness of God through repentance. Would you agree? This is not pre-repentant Paul. This is post-repentance Paul. And yet he says he still does the very things he doesn't want to do. Which means he was in a battle with sin, but he recognized something critically important And it's this, sin was not his identity. Listen to it again. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Before repentance, sin is our identity. We are sinners. After repentance, my identity is not sinner. It's no longer sinner. It's God's beloved in Christ. So that's how Paul could say, if I do the very thing I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. Well, wait a minute. How could he say he's not a sinner, but he still has sin? Because he still had a body. He still had a fallen, corruptible body, which is the very place that sin lives. Sin does not live in the glorified, redeemed world. It lives in the fallen, corruptible world, which we are still a part of. So how can Paul say, "Ah, it's not me doing it, it's sin that dwells in me? His identity was now rooted in God's beloved in Christ, which meant who he is at the core of his being had been transformed and redeemed And Galatians 2.20, which he also wrote, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Put him at war with himself. Put him at war with his flesh. Now here's the problem. I think oftentimes we cannot distinguish between my identity as God's beloved in Christ and my identity as a sinner because we're not fighting that. We're too comfortable with it. We don't stand against it. This is the same Paul who wrote, have you resist sin to the point of shedding blood? He viewed it as very important to say as the redeemed person whose identity is now God's beloved in Christ, I will stand against these things that dwell in me that are not of God. Now I wanna give you a definition of sin before I go too much further into this because I don't want you to think that I'm talking about just doing bad things. 
Sin is anything that breaks the relationship with God. It's a relational concept, not a behavioral concept. Which simply then means that how do I fight this battle against sin that's in me, but don't accept it as an identity? Well, simply this. I seek first all that builds my relationship with God. That's how I stand against sin. That's how I enter into this battle. That's how I stand against the flesh. That's how I stand against what's corrupted. That's how I enter into this place where it is all about God's kingdom and not simply my desires or whether I do good things or bad things. It's about how I'm relating. So God is good and can have no badness in his presence, yet we have sin dwelling in our flesh. It doesn't condemn us because we're in Christ. Now there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't condemn me, but I must deal with it. So God is good. I'm in his goodness through repentance and I have a flesh that houses this sin, which is not good. So what do you think must happen at this point? Well, that sin has to be removed so that I can come fully into God's presence. Listen to this in Psalm 66, verse 10. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. So how do I respond when it doesn't seem that God is good? Well, because I know that God is refining me as silver, that he's removing the very sin that dwells in my flesh, wisdom might demand that I strongly consider the possibility that what I perceive as bad is actually the uncomfortable but necessary and glorious refining of God in my life. All is grace. The grace of God poured out on me. The ultimate good for me is that I would be transformed into the image of Christ. The ultimate good for me is that all that is not of God would be removed from me. The ultimate good for me is that every desire towards the things that are not of God would be eradicated in me. Now, let me ask you this way. If you were outside and there was a little old lady crossing the street and you saw me body check her like a, a Matthews kind of cross check onto the sidewalk, what would you think of me? Bit of a jerk, huh? Let me ask you this. If you saw me do that, because that lady also would say, that's not good. This is not how you treat old ladies crossing the street. And she'd be right. But let me ask you this. If right after I cross-checked that old lady onto the sidewalk, a dump truck came speeding by, would she say that that cross-check was good? I think she would. Do you see my point? Sometimes we look at things that God is doing in us and we say it's not good because I don't like it. I don't like the way it feels. But what he's actually doing is preserving us from a fate worse than his transformation. It's what Jesus said again in Luke 18. You're going to perish likewise unless you repent. 
So this refining process is going on all the time. But you know what's interesting? I'm one of those people that sometimes I watch stupid stuff on television just because it's on television, right? Anybody else do that? You stop and somebody goes, why are you watching this? I have no earthly idea. I don't understand. I was flipping channels one time and I came across this guy using medieval processes to refine silver. That is as exciting as it sounds, and yet I watched. I learned one thing that this was years and years ago. One thing stuck with me. The guy's he's heating the silver up and he's scraping the dross off. He's heating the silver and scraping the dross. And of course, this was like a, a public broadcasting kind of announcer. And so he's like, well, so how hot do you have to get the silver before dross bubbles up? He was literally that entertaining. And then he asked a question. He said, well, how do you know when it's done? And the silversmith looked at him and said, well, I can see myself in it. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe the refining process that's happening in us that we don't feel is so good is actually resulting in God looking at us and going, I see myself in it. Maybe we should embrace it. Maybe we should actually desire it. See, here's the thing. We all experience what we would call bad. We've all had hurt and loss and we've encountered evil and tragedy and death and all sorts of things that no one would ever call good. And I'm not suggesting that you need to become one of these people who tries to be spiritually numb in the face of tragedy and say things like what was said to Jim Smith What's the spiritual purpose of this, Jim? Did you sin or your wife? That grabs a hold of trite sayings and hyper-spiritual wishful thinking just to make ourselves feel better. I would suggest that we respond in the times of our own refining when things feel bad. I would suggest we respond the same way Job did when he faced his tragedy. We don't blame God. We don't question his goodness. Now listen to Job's response to his deep, tragedy and loss. Now you have to remember in this response, Job didn't know at this moment what we now know, that everything was going to be okay. Job didn't know that in this moment. Listen to his response in Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Job knew God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good His tragedies became a reminder to hope, not question. And this part right here is very important. He didn't deny his pain. He didn't deny his hurt. He didn't deny his confusion. He didn't deny his disorientation. On the contrary, he stood before God as he was in the tragedy. He stood before God with his internal space clearly laid out before God. No apologies this is where I'm at, God, you're slaying me. I'm still going to hope in you. He was real and open and hurt and raw and troubled before God. So the question should become, why was he able to stand before God in this way? Because I'll be honest, I don't always find myself being able to stand before God in this way. I'll tell you why. Because the volume of his tragedy in his life, shouting, God is not good, couldn't drown out the still, small 
voice of God speaking grace and goodness into the very depths of his soul. So how do you develop that same level of sensitivity to the voice of God? That voice of God speaking truth and life into our souls in our moments of tragedy and pain. How do we develop ears to hear that? When the world is shouting at us, God is not good. How do we become attuned to that voice? Well, just like for Job, for us, it starts with silence. Listen to this in Job 2.13. When all of these bad things had just happened, they just hit him hard and he was in despair and his friends show up to comfort him. Listen to this. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. Silence speaks volumes in tragedy. Silence speaks volumes in difficulty. Silence before God when I'm hurt and devastated and I feel like everything is against me places me in the very palm of God's hand of goodness. I had a friend years ago, played soccer with him, he was South African, and he tried to call me for like a week, but what he didn't know is that my mother had had an aneurysm. And so I wasn't answering the phone. And so I finally answered it. I got home from the hospital one night and she, she, they, they told us she would be dead within eight hours when she first went in and she's still alive today. So, so the doctors don't always know. But I got home and, and, and the phone rang and I answered it. And he's like, hey, what's your problem? Where have you been? You didn't call me back. I've been trying to reach you on and on and on. And, and just doing that thing that friends do, giving each other a hard time. I said, man, I'm sorry. My mom's in the hospital. We don't know if she's going to make it. And he did the greatest thing anybody's ever done for me in the time of difficulty. This is what, exactly what he said. He said, man, I never know what to say in times like this. And he stopped talking. And we sat on the phone in silence. That presence, when we are in times of difficulty and tragedy, we can become aware of that presence if we will stop talking. And that's what Job did. That's what God invites us into. When I am unraveled inside and I go to God and I want to say, God, I need this and you got to do that and you got to fix this and this is bad and I don't like this and, I, and on and on and on and on and on. Really what I'm doing is trying to justify my feelings. But when I go to God and I sit in silence, justification stops. Listen to this quote from Richard Foster, author and pastor. Silence is one of the deepest disciplines of the spirit simply because it puts the stopper on self-justification. One of the fruits of silence is the freedom to let God be our justifier. Back to this idea, God is good and I am not. When I sit in God's presence in silence, I allow him to be good and I accept that I am not. Which is why Job found hope was able to sit with God and say, though you slay me, I will still hope in you. So here's what I want to encourage you into this week. I want to encourage you to find some moments in your day this week. They don't necessarily have to be scheduled, but if they are, that's great. 
and they don't have to be hours. If I invited you to sit in silence for an hour, most of you would get about three minutes in and go, yeah, this is nuts. I'm not doing it. It can be simple moments, but find some time in your day this week, maybe in between activities, maybe a time you go to bed 15 minutes earlier just so you can lie on your pillow in silence and just be silent before God. Let his goodness be your only source of justification. And let it be all that you need as you continuously place yourself in God's goodness and his presence and find his grace constantly poured out on you. You know, if you're not sure about that and you're like, well, that kind of sounds a little freaky, let me just encourage you with Psalm 4, verse 4. Psalm 4, verse 4 says this. When you're angry, don't sin. Okay, that's good advice, right? But lay on your bed and ponder these things in silence. Maybe the starting point for silence is when emotional things come up, when you feel angry or hurt, when you feel like things are coming at you, maybe let that be a reminder to say, you know what, I'm going to sit and ponder these things in silence before God just like the psalmist invited me to do. Here's what silence does in my life. And I've gone off and done silent retreats for years now. One of the greatest blessings of silence in my life is this. I get a little respite from the biggest liar I know. When I stop talking, I get a break from the biggest liar and self-justifier I know. Sometimes that in and of itself is enough for God to speak in that still, small voice that cracks through what we think is bad and the hurt and the tragedy and the loss and the difficulty of life and lets us sit fully justified by him in his presence as he does a work in us. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can come into your presence, your goodness, God. We thank you for the grace, the manifestation of your goodness poured out on us that we experience daily in our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would become people who are so overwhelmed by the grace that you pour out on us, the goodness that you bring into the lives of those of us who are not good, that grace that's poured out on us. I pray that we'd become so enamored with that that nothing else matters and we'd live a lifestyle of praising the glory of your grace. And Father, I ask that you give us all an invitation this week to sit silently before you, just as Psalm 4, verse 4 says, to ponder the things that upset us and disturb us, that feel bad, and to silently sit before you so that we can have hearts like Job, that we can say with integrity and sincerity that though you slay me, we will hope in you more. And Father, that's our prayer. That's our desire. But that's also what we see in the life of Jesus, so that's why we want it. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your goodness poured out on us, your goodness manifest in Christ, who withstood all the evil of the world so that we wouldn't have to experience the wrath of your goodness. And so it's in his name that we pray. Amen.